Good morning. This is a significant day for our church, for the life of our church here on the north side. Uh, We have journeyed together for a year, and yet we begin really a new chapter in every way. Some of you have been here since day one. Some of you are friends and family here just to celebrate this story. Uh, Many of you may be guests from the west side, from the east side, who maybe live more on this side of town and are here to explore what the north side is like in our life together. Um, We chose intentionally to invite our older kids into the service today because it's really a value. As we begin a new chapter, we want them to worship with us to begin this story as one big family, young and old. And so uh, it's really exciting to begin this season all together here. And so for a few minutes, I want to on John chapter one. I was reflecting because really we had the month of December off. It was a gift we gave to you as the North side. We gave you the month off. Um, in In our transition, it was a fairly disruptive month. And so we're just now kind of beginning new seasons and new rhythms together. And so I had some time to be reflective. And as I was thinking about our last year together, I was thinking about our first sermon, uh, really that first uh, time that we were together. And I was remembering, I talked about stories. If you were here, you will remember this. We talked about the significance of stories, that in our lives, stories give us meaning and they give us identity. They give us purpose. We tell ourselves stories and we participate and enter into other stories to help define and shape who we are and the things that we value. And we gave all sorts of examples. I remember talking for a long while about Atlanta United, you may recall, because in recent years, this has become a big story in our city. Tens of thousands of people who may not even understand soccer love Atlanta United and have said, that's something I want to be a part of. Many of you in this room, that would be true. There's also Georgia Bulldogs fans and Falcons fans and Hawks fans, but those are really sad stories. So we're not going to talk about those. Atlanta United's a great story. It's a story to be a part of. There are other stories that we tell. I have family members who love ancestry, which is quite literally the digging up of your old stories, your family stories, and in so doing, find meaning and they find significance in that. But there's other stories that are more subtle, but no less significant in our lives. Think about the pursuit of wealth. That is a significant story that we believe and buy into because we think this will give meaning and purpose and direction to my life. And so I will give myself to it in a significant way. The various seasons of life that we are in also give us meaning and our stories we participate in. If you're a parent, which many of you in this room are, parenthood is a story that shapes your identity. If you are single, that also shapes your story. If you're a student, if you're an empty nester, you get the idea. These are all stories that shape our lives. And one of the things I've been trying to hit home almost every week for the last year is that Christianity, the Christian faith, is meant to be the overarching singular story that shapes and gives meaning to your life. So much so that every other story that you and I believe and follow and enter into is redefined and reshaped by our Christian faith. So much so that the stories that say they claim primary allegiance and significance, actually our faith helps put them where they belong. They are lesser stories, and we begin to see them as such. This is something we're called to do as Christians, to reorient every year around the story of God. The gift of a new year, the Christian year started just about a month ago. We hit the new calendar year a few days ago. We kind of reset as a people this time of year. And so it's time to reset again around the story of the Christian faith. 
That's the gift of the liturgical year. If you've been around Trinity at all, any of our locations, you know that we follow the Christian year, the liturgical year. This is not something I grew up with at all. This is not native to me. This was all new. And parts of the Anglican tradition came to me pretty easily. And yet other parts felt very foreign. I imagine you can relate. There's parts of this that uh, feel normal and comfortable and other parts are very confusing and disorienting. And for me, the calendar was somewhat disorienting. I distinctly remember the first Anglican church I was a part of, remember a few months in, them announcing their children's pageant would be held on January the 6th. Children's Christmas pageant, January the 6th. And in my house growing up, the Christmas tree was stripped and out on the curb by about 3 p.m. on Christmas Day. And so a pageant on January the 6th was completely and utterly foreign to me. It made me quickly realize there are things about this family, this big church family, that are very different than my family or what I grew up knowing or thinking was normal. And yet that's what they did. Why would they do such a thing? Why would they have their pageant weeks after Christmas? Well, and this is what I'm getting at. Today's a significant day in the life of the church, in the life of the liturgical year, because we stand really at a hinge where today's the final day of Christmas. Christmas, as the song very annoyingly reminds us, is 12 days, 12 days of Christmas. And yet, very few of us, I imagine, grew up with that as a living reality, that this is a feast that we observe for 12 days. Similarly, tomorrow is the Feast of the Epiphany, it's called. The Eastern Church is called Theophany. Epiphany, and then the season that follows, was totally and utterly foreign to me. That was the reason they had the Christmas pageant, and yet I had no clue why we were having a pageant January the 6th. You may be in a similar place where you don't have any idea what epiphany is, or if you've walked with these rhythms for some years, you know it's a thing that kind of fills the space between Christmas and Lent, but you're not quite sure what it is. I want to take just a few minutes and talk about epiphany, about the significance of epiphany, because tomorrow is the feast of the epiphany. In the Book of Common Prayer, The service for Epiphany has this subtitle. It's called The Manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles, which may not help a lot, but I think it gets us where we're headed. The Manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. Epiphany is meant to help us understand and say, what is the significance of Christmas? We've all celebrated with friends and family for weeks now the fact that God is with us, that Christ is born. And yet, what is the actual significance of his birth? How does it impact all people in all places at all times, across all races and cultures and generations? What is the significance of Jesus? Epiphany is a big deal. It's been observed in the church for a long time. All the way back to the third century, we have observances of Epiphany where Christians have said, how do we sit with the significance of the Incarnation? What does it mean that God is with us and therefore the light of Christ shines into the whole world? Not just good news for the Jews, but good news for all people, good news for the Gentiles as well. And so early on, the Eastern Christians first began observing this and they focused on the baptism of Jesus. And so sometimes this time of year in other cultures, you'll see lots of celebrations that center around water, blessing of the waters. You'll see polar plunges where people go swimming in Arctic waters. We can't really do that one here, but centering on water because for many years, people focus on the baptism of Jesus because in his baptism, we learn something of Jesus's identity. We learn something of his significance, that his mission is for the world, that he's set apart on mission to bring God's peace and his goodness and his blessing to the world. In the West, 
This same emphasis was told through the story of the Magi, the kings who brought gifts. That is why this church years ago had their pageant on the 6th of January, because it was traditionally a day where you remember the giving of gifts, where you remember the wise men who came to greet the Lord Jesus. We have an icon of this here. Just as an aside, one of the ways we're trying to make a co-working space feel like church as well is we brought seasonal icons for the whole of the liturgical year. We'll kind of integrate those into our life together. And so we have this one for Epiphany. I know it's technically tomorrow, but we're not together tomorrow. And so uh, we pulled it in. We're sneaking it in. Uh, Helps us remember this is the focus of this day, the wise men giving gifts. Let's talk about the wise men for a minute. If I'm honest, I'm not sure I've ever really set with the significance of the gifts that the wise men gave. If at best, when I thought about the story, I thought Jesus is king and therefore is worthy of receiving gifts. The kings come to offer the king of kings gifts. And yet, thankfully, Christians have thought more deeply about this than I have for a long time. And so there's been a real significance attributed to the three gifts that they bring. Gold was meant to help us understand Jesus' identity as king. Incense, incense all the way to our Jewish roots has been used in worship as a sign of worship of prayers ascending to heaven. And so that's meant to help us remember that this king is also God, God worthy of worship. And then myrrh, myrrh, which is interesting, myrrh is a burial spice. And so it also helps us, even from his birth, remember that this king who is God will also have a ministry shaped and defined by suffering, by his death. Which is why, if you've ever made it all the way to the final verse of We Three Kings, which very few of us have, but if you have, there's a treat in store for you. And it says this, Glorious now behold him arise, king and God in sacrifice. Heaven sings, Alleluia, Alleluia, the earth replies. It's a really significant reflection. Those few lines tell us quite a lot. Even those last two, heaven sings, Alleluia. In a sense, it's saying heaven helps us see the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is the word made flesh, as we've read. Heaven is showing us the true identity of the Lord Jesus. And yet, alleluia, the earth replies. It's saying, we as creation, we as the people of God, we have to respond. As Jesus is revealed to the nations, we as the nations are meant to respond to that revelation. That's the heart of Epiphany. In the 8th century, there was this English monk with an epic name called the Venerable Bede. The Venerable Bede. That's such a good name. And what he pointed out is he thought about this and he said those three kings actually represent the three parts of the known world, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And the point he was trying to make is when we see three kings coming to offer gifts, It's meant to be a reflection of the whole of creation. This is what every one of us is meant to do. Offer gifts that help us see who Jesus is, and we offer them on our knees. We offer them in worship, just as the kings did. That's the heart of Epiphany. Let's shift gears just a little bit and reflect for a few minutes on how our reading today unpacks these themes. Verse 14 that we read says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. 
So over this Christmas break, I imagine like many of you with a little extra time, uh, you find time for things you don't normally do. And so uh, I think in some ways to offset the binge watching of The Crown that we've been doing in our home, I tried to read a few books as well, kind of like restore and keep some of my humanity. (laughs) And so I've been reading specifically a a modern day classic, Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. Some of you may have read this book. It's a brilliant book. It's surprisingly funny and insightful. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, And in the very beginning, if you've read it, you'll recall Chesterton tells this really comical story trying to make a point. And he tells the story of a sailor. He calls him a yachtsman. He tells the story of a sailor who's an English sailor who decides to set out on an adventure. He's ready for conflict. He's ready for the linguistic and cultural challenges he'll face. He's up for anything. He sets out on this grand voyage. And because he makes a mistake in his calculations, instead of discovering an island in the South Seas, what he actually discovers is the English coast. <laughs> And he very dramatically, you know, embarks and disembarks upon uh, the land and realizes it's entirely familiar in a place that he's known all along. And what Chesterton says about it, the reason he tells the story is this. He puts it this way. What could be more delightful than to have in the same few minutes the fascinating terrors of going abroad combined with all the humane security of coming home again? And so in light of it, he asks this question, how can we contrive to be at once astonished at the world and yet at home in it? His answer to the question, we need so to view the world as to combine an idea of wonder and an idea of welcome. We need to be happy in this wonderland without being merely comfortable. I really love this story because I think he captures an emotion that's very hard to capture, which is there's something in us as human beings that longs for adventure. We long to set out on something grand, something bigger than us, something beyond us, to believe that we're a part of something significant. I think that that's baked into the core of who we are as human beings, that we long to to know God to pursue him. And yet what's fascinating is that Chesterton says, what happens if that adventure can actually be found at home? Not in the out there, not distant, but what if that adventure, what if that longing can actually be redirected in turn to what might seem very routine or ordinary or known? I think you can apply this really to the the quest for God, the human experience. Since the earliest days, we've longed to know God. We've longed to pursue him and believe that there's something to be known. But we always think it's out there. We think God is way out there. And therefore, to find him or encounter him, I have to go out there where he is. We think he's as distant as the South Seas. He's out there and we're down here. I've been reading another book that I really recommend as well uh, by a pastor up in Tennessee called Stephen Freeman. His book's called Everywhere Present. And he makes several points that others have made in other ways, but one image that he uses throughout the book that's really helpful, and this is something I want you to sit with this week, is he talks about what he calls a two-story universe. Not stories the way that I've been using story earlier, but story like the levels of a house. First story, second story. He says, by and large, we default to a two-story view of the world, which means we all live on the first story and God lives on the second story. And what we then spend our lives doing is quietly listening for creaks in the floorboard or the shuffling of furniture or someone coughing upstairs just to make sure that someone is still 
up there. But never would we actually think that the upstairs would come downstairs. And yet the whole point of his book is he says, what if reality itself is actually a single story universe? What if something about the incarnation, the word made flesh, means that we don't live in a multi-story universe, but that we live in a single story universe? That God is near to us and therefore is meant to be by design encountered in the everyday stuff of life. The stuff that doesn't feel very holy or doesn't feel very spiritual, feels very ordinary and routine. What if those are actually the places we're meant to encounter God? Because he's not upstairs, but he's nearer than we could possibly think or imagine. I think year after year, we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate God with us, the word made flesh. And then just like that, our calendar flips over and we go right back to living in a two-story universe. At least we may not put it that way, but by our actions, the way we live, we live as though God lives upstairs and we're down here. And so we say, we'll give you an hour on a Sunday, a few minutes here or there, trying to quiet ourselves enough to remember that you live upstairs, and that you're kind of always looking out. And if we're too rambunctious, you'll come downstairs and let us hear it. So that's kind of how we live. And yet, what if we actually reset and lived a rhythm in such a way that we believed every moment was holy? Every single place we went was infused with the very nearness of God. I think this is something we have to reclaim. In the message, Eugene Peterson says, the word was made flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That isn't just a nice theological reflection or something that's 2,000 years old. It's true today. Jesus Christ lives in the neighborhood. And we have to affirm and celebrate that. He lives here in this place in a special way. But he's with us wherever we go. Let's do a little liturgical quiz, just for fun. If I say the Lord be with you, what are you supposed to say? Yeah, that'll work. Most of the time, if I say the Lord be with you, in many traditions, you would say, and also with you. Um, Some churches may be with your spirit or something along those lines, but it's a bit of a call and response. And that's a good, appropriate liturgical line. And yet my one frustration with it is it could be interpreted in such a way that says, unless I say he's with you, he's not there. And so I need to like give him to you and you give him back to me. The Irish church about 15 years ago in their worship tweaked that line slightly And they say, the Lord is here. And people respond, his spirit is with us. And I loved it so much that I just blatantly grabbed it out of their prayer book and put it in ours. And so if you've been with us the last year, you'll know that response. And one of the things I love about it, the Lord is here, his spirit is with us, is that is a single story prayer. That's a prayer you could breathe in and breathe out every day this week. That when you feel that God's distant, when you don't feel like he's in your cubicle or in your kitchen or in your classroom, to actually breathe that in and say, the Lord is here. His spirit is with us. We say that in the context of communion because we believe in a particular way he is near to us in this meal, but he's also present in your cubicle, in your classroom, in your kitchen, wherever you find yourself. That's what we celebrate. And I think just to land with this, this is a very new space. Nothing today feels comfortable for any of us us up here included. It's as foreign to me as it is to you. This is a new season, a new space. And yet we, in just a moment, will with boldness say, the Lord is here. His spirit is with us. And so we can affirm, even though it's not yet familiar, that that is nonetheless very real and true. And as we learn to live as a family, learn to be comfortable in this space with one another, learn to be a blessing to this community. That's a prayer we can pray every single day. The Lord is here. His spirit is with us.
Would you pray with me? Lord, we do affirm that today, that you are here and your spirit is with us. Whatever may be going on in our hearts, and our lives, the exhaustion we may bring into this room today, from the last month of holidays and Christmas and family and just that sense of being maybe a little frayed around the edges. God, that optimism maybe that we bring with a new year, the resolutions we carry in our heart, whatever it is that we bring into this place, Lord, we affirm that you are here, that you are near to us, closer than we can even imagine. So we celebrate that, Lord Jesus. We celebrate that you are the light for the nations, that you came and dwelt among us, and you left your spirit and therefore have never left us and never will. And so we hold to hope. We hold to faith today, Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.